Welcome to The Edge from Bantam Tools, our podcast about designers, educators, and businesses exploring the frontiers of digital fabrication. I'm Bree Pettis. And I'm Zach Dunham, your co-host on The Edge. Welcome to Season 3. We're back. Today, we're going to dive headfirst into soft goods and the world of textiles manufacturing with expert Carly Mick. Carly is the Senior Manufacturing Manager for Kestrel Materials, a startup born out of other lab in San Francisco that's focused on making adaptable and delightfully different textiles. Kestrel is a thermally adaptive fabric that's being developed for apparel and bedding. And what that means is it it utilizes a yarn technology that allows it to change its shape as the ambient temperature changes. So if you imagine a piece of fabric that lays flat at room temperature, and then you take it into the cold environment and it becomes this uh, sort of expanded, almost corrugated looking object, which allows it to trap air and become an insulator. So it's almost like you go from having a sweatshirt indoors to a puffy jacket the moment you walk outside. And this is useful in bedding because when the weather gets cold, it gets fluffier. You want it to be something that helps you go through transitional times. So that's like day to night, indoor, outdoors, on and off the subway. Anytime that you're changing temperatures rapidly and dramatically, this would be an appropriate technology. Like our walk here this morning, we uh, left home, (laughs) went out in the rain, into the subway, back out in the rain again. Exactly. With Kestrel, Carly is really helping explore the bleeding edge of advanced textiles. And she's been at this for a long time. I started off doing textile-related projects when I was very young. So, you know, started sewing when I was a kid, got into knitting, weaving, and sewing, a lot of sewing when I was younger. And that didn't really seem like a viable profession. So I wound up going to school for mathematics, which is also not a viable profession. (laughs) (laughs) So at the end of all of that, um, by the time I graduated, I was managing a production sewing studio, um, working on canvas products, mainly tents and uh, luggage and various other canvas-related things. And from there, Carly quickly got a foothold in the industry and began working at the intersection of hard goods and soft goods. We worked on projects with Nike and Microsoft and Logitech, and we did some NASA work, uh, and that was really exciting. It got me um, a lot more hands-on experience with heavy equipment and the sort of integration between fabric and machinery, which turned out to be really my passion. So I wound up going back to graduate school in North Carolina and focused there on on on-demand manufacturing. One of the things that's interesting about what you do is When people think about manufacturing, they often think about like machinery and metal. You've seen manufacturing from the apparel side of things. And like, I don't know if everybody understands that a sewing machine is a power tool. Like it is a... (laughs) Absolutely. And knitting machines are even more so. And so like the the sort of ability to go down the rabbit hole in sort of the mechanical engineering or fabrication geekness is pretty high in your field. I totally agree. And it was actually funny, the email that you guys sent me where, you know, you were asking about how prototyping works with fabric and how it relates to more traditional materials. The sort of phrasing of that, the traditional materials, is the part that always kind of cracks me up. I think it's the... um, (laughs) (laughs) Fabric's pretty traditional, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Fabric's pretty traditional. (laughs) And and it's also, it's funny because a lot of people who work with uh, digital technologies, they really 
don't understand what's magic about fabric. And this, this idea that it is strong in tension and weak in compression, which basically makes it uh, deployable. And what I mean is like you can pack it super small and when you get to where you need it, you deploy it. It becomes something else. And I think that that power in fabric is really fascinating and also underutilized. A lot of people want to make fabric into something that they're more comfortable machining or more comfortable working with, uh, like rendering. Rendering is a terrible way to display fabrics, but it's a lot of how people do product design. So you see things, I think the iPad smart cover is an excellent example of that. It's a fabric covered product, but it really looks like a computer rendering. It's not really taking advantage of any of the the sort of joy of fabric. What does the process look like for using digital tools and working with, with fabrics? Uh, it's a really good question. So let's talk about it from a product design standpoint, because that's a lot of what I've done. So I usually start in Rhino to figure out the three-dimensional shape that I'm actually trying to make the fabric go around. And again, like you have to sort of think about objects versus people because people are super weird shapes and there's, you know, very specific technology for dealing with the fact that they are all different shapes and they move and all those shapes change. Like that's very complicated. But if you're thinking about it from a bag perspective or headphones or anything else that utilizes fabric but is more static, I would probably start with whatever the 3D model is for the object itself. Then you have to extrapolate the flat pattern pieces. So so there's certain kinds of unroll software, but I actually find that experience is the best tool there. So you start thinking about what the flat pieces are going to be that will create the object that's desired. So a lot of that is double checking your sizes and shapes against the models, but also understanding that you know the fabric is laying on top of a surface, so it has to be slightly larger than the surface. Uh, so adding and subtracting and moving things around as is appropriate to the object. From there, I'll probably go into some kind of cutting technology, laser, um, drag knives, in order to cut out fabric. Then I will start sewing or whatever else is the appropriate technology. There's gluing, there's welding, there's molding, um, whatever it is that you're using to join your fabric either to itself or to the hard object that you're working with. And from there, I will probably have to do many, many iterations. So I'll start with one and it'll turn out that I've completely miscalculated something and have to start over and work with the fabric itself. There's often a give and take and, and fabrics aren't identical to each other. So you have to go through the process with the fabric that you want. If you try and substitute other things in there, it can get really challenging really fast and you start going down the wrong path because you're trying to get a certain behavior from that fabric. And that can really change depending on like the orientation of the fabric and the means you're using to join it, which can really affect how that fabric's gonna lay on the object. So you have to be careful and try a lot of different things depending on the goals. Are there like modeling tools to help you choose the orientation and joinery or is that all just like you got to get down to the to, to cutting things out and putting them together and actually seeing and feeling the materials in your hand you know this is a place that i would like i feel like a lot of the people who build software for doing this in hard goods have no experience doing it in soft goods so the there hasn't been almost any development in that space i think it's a huge white space and if people could start building those technologies, it would make it way more accessible to people. But as it stands, I've tried a number of different tools and they all kind of suck. 
<laughs> as I was listening to you, I was imagining, okay, let's take a body, let's take a 3D model of a body, let's cut the head off and just have the torso, and then use a tool like Pepakura or one of the unfolding tools to like unfold the model. Uh-huh. And then and then you would cut that out of fabric and then sew it back together. It would look nothing like a suit jacket. Like it would look <laughs> zero like a suit jacket. It would not it, it would just the the laws of unfolding a 3D model are not a tailor's at all. Actually, one of the better ones that I've seen is Clo, which is um, comes from the video game industry where people are trying to clothe animated characters. And oh yeah, like, yeah, and people mm. started off basically having the sort of spray painted hard body, right? Like where it's just kind of colors. And as the gaming technology has gotten a lot better, they've started to understand the mathematics of how fabric move and drape depending on the fabric. So they built all of these tools for the gaming industry. And now there's a bunch of people who are using it in apparel because it's the first modeling tool that really understands fabric. Um, but they came at it from a totally backward source. And so they're trying to figure out how to digest all of that sort of tailoring knowledge and the sort of industry standards for how people make seams and construction techniques. But that's the best I've seen so far. It's funny, like I have occasionally, as a hobbyist, play a, a, a battle royale game, PUBG. And the way that this game makes money is they sell clothes, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and like... So this, like, this is a this is like a billion dollar industry of like selling virtual clothes. Yeah, uh, it, like it's crazy. It's built on on pretty much exactly the technology I'm talking about. Now extrapolate that and imagine you could do that from you know your favorite clothing supplier, and you you can scan in your body, you uh, you know apply various clothes, try them on, you like it, and then that. Uh, basically places an order at a new company and then they build that object for you and ship it to your house. I mean, if we ever end up living in the matrix <laughs> and it's truly a virtual world, like I feel like the fabric is going to be the hardest part of getting that to actually be realistic. <laughs> I actually, so, I mean, this is, what I just described is is the world we're already living in. Like people are doing this today. And honestly, I think the only difference between fabric and hard goods in the in the futuristic matrix world that you're talking about is experience. Like if people who build stuff start building stuff in fabric, we're going to be in the same place. But for some reason, there's a, a disconnect and people don't think of it as something that they can just sit down and work on or, you know, and I, I really don't know why that is, but it's definitely true. So I've always wanted to do a, a lecture on the future of soft goods through the lens of old sci-fi movies because it's yeah. there, there you go. You're, now you're talking breeze language. <laughs> I think that like the way that people are costumed there in in sort of the response to futurism <laughs> is so fascinating to me. <laughs> Your eyes must just see things differently. Like when you watch TV, when you're watching, you know, movies. What are you seeing that, that I'm not seeing? Uh, let's start with Game of Thrones, because that's applicable. Yes. Um, so watching Game of Thrones from a costuming perspective is fascinating. Like, you think about the amount of time and work that went into the leather armor that some of those people are wearing, and you see them for a split second, but that meant that somebody did, like, actual leather molding. Like, they made two-part molds, they put things together, they, like, finished the leather on things, they hand-stitched stuff. It's like hours of work that went into some of this. Well, what's a two-part leather mold? So fabric is fundamentally movable, right? But 
but what is fabric? Like I think about it as like sort of anything that's a little bit two dimensional and has some flexibility. So whether or not it's, it's a sheet of plastic or fabric, like there's some real gray areas in there. And so I throw leather in there too, because it, it follows the same rules and a lot of the same processes that you would do with other things. So with leather and with a lot of different fabrics, molding is totally possible. And so you're using the same pressure, heat, time, moisture in order to create changes in the fabric. And so you look at um, headphones are a good example. There's a lot of like molded headphones. There's a lot of molded leather, um, but it's just a really standard two-part mold. I mean, you build something that's, um, you know, the male part of the mold, you drape your fabric across it, you put your female part of the mold on there, you clamp the whole thing together, and either you heat it up at that point or you heat it up before you put it in the mold um, and then leave it for a certain amount of time. With leather, it's moisture that helps the molding process. So if you soak a piece of leather and stick it in a mold and clamp it together and leave it until it dries, it will retain that shape basically forever. So cool. I never knew that that existed. Yeah. Are those molds plaster so that the, the moisture can wick out? Um, or I would probably avoid just... using plaster because it would probably color your leather. Um, oh, yeah. But it doesn't take that long to dry. I mean, you can do it with just like machined uh, MDF or really anything else you want. When we return, we'll talk with Carly about the desktop machine space and the larger movement to make textiles more accessible to everyone. But first, I catch up with Gerard Rubio, the founder of Knitterate, an actual desktop CNC knitting machine. So Knitterate is a CNC knitting machine for any workshop, like universities, um, maker spaces, small businesses, research labs. And basically, it allows users to automatically create customized clothing and accessories. So cool. And um, you've been working on this for for quite some time yeah. now. <laughs> so it started as a university project back in 2013. Uh, it was called then OpenKnit. It was an open source uh, digital knitting machine. And I kept working on it for a couple of years because there was a small community around it and it was quite fun. And yeah, I was working on the site, but uh, it wasn't taking off. So I realized, okay, if I want to make this like a real project, a machine that is reliable and people can really trust, um, I need to build a company. And that's uh, what I did with a couple of friends. We started Nitrate, we got some money, and then we launched a Kickstarter. And fast forward two years, we're here about to start manufacturing this machine. Yeah, it takes it takes a while. Yeah. How did you first stumble into deciding to make this um, a more accessible tool? Um, yeah, so this is one of our main interests and like contributions, is making this technology more accessible because we think it's really amazing. And like I personally think it's like CNC machines are one of the most underrated machines of our time. Um, this might sound a bit biased, but uh, really what you can do with them, it's, it's quite <laughs> amazing because you can do something as basic and, and intimate as clothing, something that we all use every day. And, right. then, and you can do it like automatically and on demand. So our goal with Nitrate was to take this machine out of the factory can you explain sort of the mechanics of this machine? Because I, I think for me, you know, my mind sort of goes blank when you say it's a it's a desktop knitting machine. Like, what are the mechanisms at play here? How's this work? So, okay, going back to 3D printing, you have yarn, <laughs> which would be like a filament of plastic. You put this yarn on top of the machine, mm -hmm. you put it through some mechanisms that keep it tense. And then um, mm -hmm. once you have your design on your computer, you put it on an SD card into the machine. And then you just press go, and then 
there's one, the main part is the, called the carriage that moves sideways, and that's what activates the needles that are placed on the needle bed. It's like a printer head on, a, on like yeah, an inkjet yeah, yeah. printer, right? It slides yeah, back exactly. and forth. So there's this uh, x-axis where the carriage moves, and then we could say there's the y-axis where the garment like keeps uh, like calming down of the machine. And then this carriage moves sideways and moves all the needles, depending on what you're trying to make. And also it picks the yarn that you put previously. And yeah, it's, it's quite complex. That's like lots of moving parts at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there are hundreds of needles. Yeah, Did I read that right? 500 needles. Whoa. And they're all individually addressable with the code and the programming. Yeah, of the totally. Machine. And each uh, one of these can do like different actions. So you can be moving like 500 needles uh, in one second, all of them doing different things. How are they actuated? Uh, we use like very tiny coils that move really quickly. And then there are a bunch of stepper motors that put them in the right position to do certain actions. And uh, yeah, <laughs> lots of moving parts, lots of sensors, because it needs to be very precise. You need to be like exactly where you want to be. It's really like mesmerizing to see. I hope you can you can see it soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone listening should totally check out some of the videos because the time lapse videos that you have of a sweater being produced are just incredible. Like you said, it, the sweater just sort of falls out of the knitting machine, but it seems to come <laughs> from nowhere. You can learn more about this machine and see all these videos by visiting knitterate.com. Welcome back. This is The Edge from Bantam Tools. Because we're in this space, we talk a lot you know, with other tool builders, and there's this thing around personal fabrication that comes up all the time. And I feel like you were kind of getting at that before when you were saying, you know, I'm not sure why people aren't experimenting more with, with fabrics and textiles, because it's, it's fundamentally the same sort of process that we have with these other tools. Mm-hmm. Like, where... What are what does personal fabrication with textiles look like, and like what are some of these tools? Are they already in front of us? Yeah, I mean, you probably have a sewing machine at your house. <laughs> yes, that is true. <laughs> I do too. And and but nobody ever brings them out of the closet. You know, I mean, that really is the the ultimate in desktop fabrication, right? It's it's super simple. It's incredibly cheap. It's utterly ubiquitous, and people. You know, you build stuff with it. Yeah. And is there a way that, that, that companies are inviting this kind of personal fabrication of, you know, scan your torso and will on demand use a knitting machine to custom weave you, uh, you know, a sweater or whatever? Like, how much is that the future that you want to see? Or is that just still sort of gimmicky? Mm, so it, it's an interesting question. You think about um, 3D printing. 3D printing has gone leaps and bounds in the last few years, and you can now you know, make parts at home, but you can still only make parts at home if you know how to use the software, if you know how to 3D model. And I think that that's still the the biggest hurdle in knitting. And knitting um, knitting machines are as close to 3D printing as you'll probably ever get in fabrics. And they're very good at building stuff up in um, a fairly similar way to 3D printing, except you can basically only use the outside edges. Like it's not going to create a solid for you. It's um, going to create the, um, the outline. Uh, but as soon as you sort of understand that and you build your model, you can translate that into knitting machines really effectively. But people don't know how to run the knitting machines. And again, I feel like this is a place where if we had software development in uh, textiles, we could make this significantly easier because the software that runs knitting machines right now is really 
complicated. It is not intuitive. It's not easy to use. So you have to start with basically a engineering background or some kind of, um, you know, computer training, and you have to have a deep understanding about how knitting works. And then you can start building really cool things. And that overlap is so rare that, I mean, you think about Nike and Adidas have both gotten really into this, you know, knitting technology for footwear, and they've snapped up knitting engineers right and left because it's such an unusual skill set to have that it's actually really hard to hire a knit engineer at this point. Um, But all of that is basically because the software is so bad. (laughs) I wear chunky knit sweaters as much as possible. Like I look forward to sweater time in in the, the sweater season. And I went down the rabbit hole of like, okay, I did the Brother 930 exploration back in the day. I, and then I went down the rabbit hole of like exploring like industrial knitting machines. And you're totally right. I got to the software and I hit a wall really quickly in terms of like... Absolutely. It's worse than like CAD CAM in the 80s. It's like Yes, bad. it's so bad. That's such a good way to put it. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I mean, this is a call out and I'll do this till the day I die, but like if somebody out there wants to make a better knitting machine technology, like sign me up, I will sit next to you and I will like tell you what all of this needs to happen. But we need that software. <laughs> I think that's a throwdown. That's a throwdown. <laughs> that is a throwdown. <laughs> when I was thinking about this interview with you, you know, like there are these companies that, you know, you think about like Uniqlo, mm-hmm. you know, a company that like really first started marketing with uh, like the heat tech line. And um, I think sometimes people are, you know, consumers get really swept up into the marketing of those things. And it's not immediately clear, like how much of this performance textile innovation is actually like new, Uh new sort of like materials being created versus just, well, this is a rebrand rebrand or, or this is, it's really about like how the materials are being oriented, right? You've talked a lot about like material orientation. And so like what is at the bleeding edge of performance textiles? Is it like inventing fundamentally new materials or is it just thinking about how things are sewn and, and, and put together in the order in a more clever way? Man, that is such a good question. And I've been working in textile innovation for years now. And almost every time somebody's come to me and being like, this is really game-changing technology, I'm like... I mean, sort of, you know, if you squint. (laughs) And I think that understanding what makes something truly innovative is fundamentally a hard question because rarely do people come up with one good idea that changes everything. It's almost always something small or it's like the next step in a process that's been going on for a while or the recombining of elements that have already been there. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's rarely this bolt of lightning from the sky that people want to think of as innovation. And and that's definitely true in textiles, partly because textiles have been around for ages. And the people who have built careers on this for thousands of years have developed really fantastic tools for it. And so I think that a lot of what I encounter is people just rediscovering old tools and thinking it's like a whole new thing, which is kind of sweet, but (laughs) I don't think of it as really innovation. But in terms of textiles, like I have seen what you're talking about, where I look at, you know, quote unquote, new technology and fabrics. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, you added some more plastic or supposedly it's breathable, but it kind of still makes you feel really clammy. And I'm a little cynical on a lot of that. I actually think that Kestrel is the first fabric technology that I've seen where I'm like, oh my goodness, this is actually different. This is like 100% different than anything else that's out there right now, which is 
why I joined up with the company. I want to rewind a little bit. You're talking about innovation and combining things. I had this really powerful experience early in my career where I worked with this guy who's, he just went by flimsy, like flimsy by name, flimsy by nature. <laughs> and he was a super skinny guy who was known for just being able to hack things together. He like would rent a steady cam for a job and then ha- hold on to it for a weekend and then reverse engineer and ma- machine his own steady cam, you know, kind of operation and then and then rent it out on and, and that was sort of his deal. And he was in the UK. I worked with him at the creature shop and we worked in LA together on a film. And all he wanted to do was for me to take him to like Home Depot, because in the UK they don't have big warehouse style places filled with stuff. And his whole jam was like, it's really hard to invent new things, material science, you don't get many leaps forward in material science in a lifetime. And so if you want to innovate a lot, you have to sort of smash things together, take two things that haven't been smashed together and smash them together and see what you get. And that memory that uh, it really came up strong when you were talking about sort of the state of state-of-the-art and state of innovation. I think that that's absolutely true. And it certainly happens for me a lot where, you know, people are like, oh my goodness, we can't build this. Like nobody knows how to do this. And the answer is almost always, oh yeah, they've been doing this for ages, but it's in flooring or it's in, you know, tile work or, you know, and and being able to reach outside of your own medium and talk to people and think about just how stuff is built generally is, I think, what unlocks most of those new and exciting ideas. It's just exactly what you said, smashing it all together. (laughs) So for the designers and the engineers listening, how can they get started um, experimenting with, with materials? I would say if you're interested in fabric, it's always good to have a project. You know, something that you actually want to make is the thing that's going to get you over the hump. Whatever it is for you that you see out in the world that makes you excited about fabrics, go try it and try it a few times and talk to people about it. Like there's a lot of knowledge in, uh, you know, people's aunts and moms and grandmas, you know, about how stuff works. But you have to kind of get over the hump of feeling crafty. Like that's something that I come up against a lot where I don't, I don't want to do a DIY Pinterest project. I want to do something that's pretty cool, but a lot of the information kind of lives in that DIY Pinterest world. And so you have to kind of swallow your pride a little bit and and start digging. And I think that having a project and then also really paying attention to the material itself. Fabric is something that is so tactile and so movable that you have to you have to be willing to have a conversation with it. And I I think about like If you took a cone and you set it down on the table and you put a piece of fabric on top of it, that fabric would sort of fall around the sides and create this sort of wrinkly half cone shape sort of thing. And if you grabbed it and you pulled out all the excess fabric until the fabric was like completely smooth around that cone, you would have a handful of fabric in one side and then the cone around the other. And if you cut off all the stuff that was in your hand and you opened it back up, you would basically have a square with a big pie shape cut out of it. And that fundamental uh, uh, shape, that, that, that tool that you just did is called a dart. And making a dart in anything is 90% of what you need to know about sewing with fabric. All you're trying to do is make that dart. I actually watched a handful of videos on making darts, and it's a little bit of a hello world for fabrics prototyping. Definitely a good technique to master if this episode is inspiring you. That's a great sort of like entryway into the sort of engineering of fabric. Yeah. And, and yeah. I mean, just play with it. 
sew it, tape it, staple it. Like there's a million ways that you can join stuff together and they're all fun. So just, just keep playing. I feel like the other place innovation is happening in like in, in garments and in soft things is in cosplay. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> all these people are making completely insane costumes to try and recreate what's generally CG in movies. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the way they have to backbend to make these things happen, like the sort of stuff that people are doing around like making Iron Man helmets that actually do the mechanical things that are pure CG I in love the that. movies. One of the ways, if, if clothing's your thing, uh, one of the best entryways into that is to take apart something. And I often go to the thrift store because what I want is something that fits well, but isn't doesn't look like what I want. Because if I really love it, I'm going to have trouble cutting it apart, right? So I find something that fits the way that I want something to fit. If it's a suit jacket or you know a safari jacket, you find something that's pretty similar, take it home, take it apart. And if you take it apart and take pictures of how you're taking it apart and think about the order of operations that something happened, because obviously you can't put a buttonhole on it until you've actually folded over the fabric. So if you're taking that apart, just think about what came first and what came second. Take a bunch of notes, bunch of pictures, and then try and recreate it because what you'll have at the end is a bunch of separate pieces that are all the right size and shape for you. And so you can just trace around them, cut them out of a new fabric, and uh, sew it all back together. So is Kestrel going to move into the realm of wearable things, or where are you going? (laughs) So I would argue that something like jacket or bedding is probably wearable, but um, I think you're thinking of electronics. No, I I was just wondering what the frontier is for Kestrel. Yeah, so it's basically what we have is more or less a magic yarn, (laughs) and a magic yarn that you can amplify and utilize in a whole bunch of different ways using fabric construction methods. So the amount of opportunities that I see right now for how that yarn can be utilized in different fabric structures in order to create different heating, cooling, uh, fashion. I mean, I, I see opportunities in an enormous amount of spaces. I got really into medical technologies back when I was in college and I'm like, I think there could be applications there. And really, I don't, I don't think you would have to fundamentally change anything about the technology that we're utilizing in order to deploy it in a bunch of different spaces. But right now, I mean, honestly, we're barely to the point where we can make enough yarn to make a piece of fabric with. So the first step is to be able to commercialize all of this and have it be available for consumers. And then from there, I feel like the, the innovation space that's open it's a product that I think could really revolutionize apparel and maybe even some other industries for a long time. Carly, thank you so much for speaking with us this morning. This has been uh, this is awesome. awesome. <laughs> it's totally awesome for great. me too. I love, I love having the opportunity to talk about innovation and fabric. And I really hope that, that people get excited to work in this space because we need more good brains from people who are working on digital technology here. So cool. All right. This is a great podcast. Thank you so much. Really (laughs) good. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to The Edge, the Bantam Tools podcast. Check out all the show notes and the links at bantamtools.com slash the edge. Make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.